Good morning. It is Monday, August 31st, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on Community Pulse, our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, is joined by Brian Crosby, owner and founder of Fern and Feather Forest School in Corvallis, Oregon. They'll discuss meeting the challenges of running an all-day outdoor education program. But first, Dr. Alleman will discuss local numbers and news. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Good morning, Mallory, and good morning, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Hello. Thank you for having me. So the Central Missouri, Missouri and Central Missouri are having sort of an interesting shift in uh, what's happening with our numbers. Uh, it was kind of predicted. We had been bracing ourselves for what would happen when the uh, college students returned and another some 30,000 new community members uh, joined us again. And um, sure enough, it's kind of what we expected. So we're having... Um, uh, case numbers increasing, uh, setting, and then breaking uh, uh, records. Uh, <clears throat> so we had you know, Saturday's always a busy day. So last Saturday was 81 cases. The Saturday before that was 50. Um, and this weekend, Saturday was 131. And then Sunday is often a low day. So that's been 20, 10, 40. Um, yesterday with 85 cases. So we're just really um, having this exponential growth locally. Um, And a good number of those cases are in uh, people in the demographic that is going to college, the 18 to 22 year range. I understand many people of different ages go to colleges, but that is um, the majority of college students. The uh, Columbia Public Schools, um, their benchmark uh, number on their tracker where, remember, we were going to be able to do a hybrid uh, situation where uh, students would be in-person school two days a week if the number, um, if their uh, um, benchmark number stayed below 50. And that has gone to 66.2. So although Columbia Public School says that will just be one factor that it uses to decide, um, I'm going to guess that when the school board meets tonight that um, it looks unlikely that they're going to move forward with uh, in the in-person school. Um, the bars and restaurants are still open to in uh, inside in-person uh, eating and drinking, although on Friday the um, our local leaders uh, set out a new countywide ordinance that said that uh, bars had to close by 10 and stop serving alcohol by 9, and uh, restaurants also had to do that, and restaurants that served alcohol had to also close at 10. And everybody understands that people can go drink other places, but it appeared that from contact tracing, this was a very high uh, probability place where a lot of the cases seem to be um, uh, getting infected. So um, we're going to see. We'll take us another couple of weeks to see whether that is an effect. And another concerning thing is that the Mizzou testing site on Business Loop in the old Ellis Michelle has had to turn some people away at the end of the day. As I've done a lot of inquiring about what the issue is, it has to do with the fact that the day ends and the staff needs to be done, and a lot of people are getting in line in the afternoon. So once um, they, they they are trying to like send people away earlier rather than have them sit in line and be turned away at 5 o'clock or 
six o'clock or seven o'clock. I can't remember when they when they stop swabbing. Um, and then that's problematic on Saturdays because we stop at noon and then we don't swab again until Monday morning. So we have some time there. And uh, our positivity rate has jumped from around 10 to 15 to up to 44 uh, percent. So we clearly are not doing enough testing. And uh, the health department is three to four days behind on being able to meet their caseload to contact people who are who are just newly discovered that they're infected and also help uh, trace down their contacts to do contact tracing. So um, there, these are some concerning things. Um, intensive care unit beds are are increasingly filled with uh, COVID-19 patients. Um, so all of the, the data that we've been following to try to figure out how serious things are here um, are pointing toward things getting increasingly serious. Um, still, these are relatively number, low numbers for a population um, since we're in mid-Missouri that um, our hospitals serve over around half a million people. So these are still not overwhelming numbers as a percentage of our population. But they are concerning in their the capacity of the health department to meet the contact tracing and the hospitals to continue to take care of the people who get sick. So in that context, so here we are with things sort of seeming to fall apart a little bit. I'm so glad, Brian, that you were able to join us because I think there's been a lot of conversation about how we move everything outside, including learning. So I'm wondering if you'd give us just a little summary of what um, what it is, what is a forest preschool and what is it that you're doing there? Yeah, so a forest preschool is uh, an early learning opportunity that takes place completely outside, 100% outside, and is child-led and child-directed in terms of where we go with our exploration and our learning. Um, so we have a, a bigger picture structure so that we can make sure that we're all safe and that we're all being kind to one another. Um, and then within that, that greater umbrella, we allow the kids to lead us uh, adults into what it is that they're being called to explore. Um, and that's, uh, that's the basics, the basis of most forest schools. And then each one, you know, takes some liberties to expand from there. So that's a very basic bare bones explanation of a pre of a forest school. So what are the biggest challenges in um, doing learning outside? Um, well, I think, well, here in our region where we live, it's in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, it's uh, very wet in the winter. Um, and so we do, so I think in those months we spend a good chunk of time making sure that our kids are dry and their fingers and their little toes are warm. So that's, that's one of the big challenges. And then I think helping parents understand that there are other ways to learn, that other er um, places to learn. We don't have to always go to what is most familiar. Um, so we draw in the dirt. We... Um, sit around a fire to keep ourselves warm. Um, so just educating the parents on how we do things and how it's effective can also be a bit of a challenge um, when, you know, we're all, a lot of us are so used to 
you know, doing things the way that we've done things for the last hundred years or, or so as a collective people. Right. So I hear, so you come right up against the things that I keep hearing people say, but what about the weather? Um, uh, and it sounds like that is a challenge that, um, that you're having to meet. And I'm wondering, how, how are you meeting the challenge about the weather? Yeah. So at our school, you know, we're outside all the time. But we do have covered spaces that we create um, with uh, tarps and, um, you know, we have the warming fire. And so we do have spaces to get out of the wet weather. Um, But I would say the biggest thing um, is educating the parents on what type of clothing is most appropriate. Um, So education through clothing, making sure we have extra clothes on hand. Um, if a kid does get wet. And then the other piece of the puzzle is keeping the body moving. So as adults is uh, making sure that we're active and that we're continually moving our bodies, um, which working with kids three to six is generally not a huge problem. <laughs> They're very active. Right, I would think it would be harder to keep the adults moving. That's absolutely true. <laughs> the... the I would say that us adults are, are probably the most um, <laughs> uncomfortable when it comes to the weather because we are a little more stationary. Um, we're not running around in the same way that a three-year-old is. You know, and, and another piece I, I just want to throw in that's related is just this idea of projection and how easy it is to, as adults to project our own discomfort onto children in general. I have a son. I know I do it myself from time to time to him, but allowing kids to have their experience. And we're there to make sure the line doesn't, doesn't cross into an unsafe place, but allowing them to have their experience, their autonomous ex- experience that is likely different than my autonomous experience. So this is that place where I can remember um, hearing my mother tell me, and I'm sure I said it to my daughter too, you have got to be cold. Look at you. I can tell that you're cold. And the child is saying, no, no, I'm not cold at all. Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) That sounds about (laughs) right. And, you know, like, and they might be cold, right? I mean, (laughs) that's also the other piece of the equation. That's where we're trying to, like, dance that line and make sure that, we are being safe. But in general, yeah, our kids know what their bodies are telling them. And so trusting in that and trusting in our instinct as, you know, trained professionals to make sure that everyone is safe. So here in Missouri, the other thing about the weather right now um, would be, you know, heat and humidity and um, uh, intense sunshine. Um, and um, how do you handle that in your program? Yeah, so we are actually, our program is starting back up tomorrow after almost six months off due to the COVID-19 health crisis. <clears throat> and we're staring down the barrel of the first week of school being between 91 and 96 degrees. Um, so we are going to get hit with a little heat wave here. And the beautiful thing about our the piece of land that we operate on, our main area of learning and exploration takes place in a giant grove of 
Oregon ash and big leaf maple trees. So about 90% of our area that we explore is shaded. Um, so that's kind of built in to our space. Um, the other thing that we have access to is a small river at the south end of our property uh, where we enter that space with intention and we go interact with the water um, in a respectful and um, yeah, intentional way. And so those are some of the ways that we do that. Um, so, and what the other common thing I hear is like, what about Wi-Fi and uh, your Chromebooks and your papers and pencils and books? How do you handle all of that? And I know you're right. working with the younger kids, but um, if you right. could also answer like, yeah. if you were asked to run an elementary school, for example. Sure, sure. Yeah, the questions, the questions, definitely relevant. And you know, our program is well. I built this program for a lot of reasons, and one was to help help our young children stay away from screens. So that's built into the program is uh, no screens. Let's create an authentic experience where we can use our imagination and creativity without images and story being created for us. Let's come up with some stuff on our own. Um, and so... Yeah, and as far as pencils and paper, um, I know I briefly mentioned it earlier, but, you know, we draw in the dirt with sticks. We do have some little chalkboards with chalk that the kids can draw on, and we can write letters and write numbers and learn some of those, those skills that uh, our preschool children are learning. And uh, we also have these really amazing pieces of rough milled lumber that we use for tables and the kids get to draw on there with chalk or with charcoal from the fire. Um, so there's many opportunities. We can get creative. We can use sticks to draw pictures on the ground or even use the sticks themselves to create letters. Um, so there's a lot of things. It's just about thinking outside of the box and being creative as the, as the instructors. And honestly, the kids will come up with a lot of these things, too, you know. We'll, we'll notice a kid writing a letter on the ground with sticks, and then that'll, that could flow into a whole, you know, a lesson on how we write our names or write certain letters that was directed by the child. They're ready to receive that information because they've created that experience. Right. So um, it sounds like you – that the – the decision to be outside was a part of what you were imagining for what we'll call curriculum that you really wanted yeah. there to be this so that that and I think that a lot of people who are thinking about possibly bringing education out of, outside of the classroom and into the out of doors are are doing it for a different reason they're being motivated by the need for the fresh air to keep our children a little bit safer and many of them are wanting to continue the same curriculum and structure of a school day. And I'm just wondering what you think about the, the workability of that. Yeah. Um, I know it's not what you're so, doing, but you do no, have a no, lot no. of experience yeah, with children outside. Yeah, I do. And I, I definitely have 
some thoughts on that. And, and I will say that, um, to back up just for a moment, that one of the main intentions behind starting this program was this idea of connection and connection to the land and nature first as a way to access connection to ourselves and community. Um, so that was my personal um, twist on the forest school perspective. And so nature is an integral part of what we do. Um, as And to address your, your question a little bit more directly related to other age groups, I think that um, there are some challenges in taking, you know, public school system outside, the mainstream schooling system outside, um, from, like I said, it's a rainy, rainy climate here. Well, how do you do that with 400 elementary school kids when it's pouring down rain in the middle of December um, and have the paper and the pencils and the, the iPads and all the things stay dry? Um, that's tricky. Um, I'm not really sure what the answer is um, for that. And I think the other piece is, is the equitable, the equitable, like how equitable is it to be outside? You know, we have a number of low income schools in our area and to be outside in the winter in all these variety of climates, we need to have appropriate clothing, as I mentioned earlier, and to expect everyone to have access to those kind of things is um, unreasonable to have that expectation. So, so that's a really tricky piece. I think that every child, every human being would benefit from being outside. Um, but to do it in the context that we're all used to seeing is a tricky, is a tricky thing. I think my program is about reframing how we connect and how we learn. And so, um, yeah, it's a tricky, tricky answer. I don't know that I have a great solution for that. Right. No, I hear you. I One of the things that happens when I talk about this on social media is that someone will ask something like, well, how would you possibly teach calculus outside or, you know, uh, higher order physics? And, right. and my question is, how do you teach that inside and have people really get it? And I think that we already have that challenge. Um, but mm -hmm. it is harder... Like, I think the tools that we're used to using for that are things like a chalkboard or a, some mm -hmm. sort of projected image that the teacher can modify to sort of take a person through that. And it would be harder to do that, say, with charcoal on a slate or... Right. Um, yeah, if you're doing some complex physics equation, um, yeah, it's a little bit more tricky. Yeah. So I, there's no part of me that's trying to argue that there aren't challenges. I, I just yep. um, think that we, we're also facing challenges with people. Um, you know, our current plan, it looks like, is that we're going to be doing um, school virtually uh, for yeah. grade school yeah, this year, and that's going to be also a challenge. Yeah, all right. And I was listening to, you know, the numbers that you were putting out there for the University of Missouri in Columbia and how everything's rising. Um, so it's, it's like not working, right? The mainstream way of doing things is not working to keep 
our college kids and communities safe. And, um, you know, right. we're staring. We, you know, in our community, we have Oregon State University, which is, you know, 30,000 students, and they're not all here yet, but they're going to be. So we're, you know, I think people in our community are holding their breath for something similar, you know, as to what you all are experiencing down there. Right. So it's it's it's, it's concerning. Um, and I know here, like public schools in our community, in our district, they are they are doing at least the first six weeks online fully um, and reevaluating after that. And the university is doing most of their things online as well. Although students, most students will be on campus and a few labs and things will be taking place um, on site in the classrooms. Right. As you point out, there's a lot of our, the mainstream way that we've been doing things that has not been, has been working in some ways and not working in others. And the, this pandemic is, is exposing um, the weaknesses in all of our systems. And no matter what our systems had been, the weaknesses would have been exposed by COVID. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. So I'm wondering how COVID is modifying your program or challenging you in a new way. Yeah, there's definitely, definitely that. Um, so to even reopen... Um, a preschool or daycare in the state of Oregon, you have to apply to the state to reopen as an emergency facility. And so that's a big hurdle. You've got to pass this whole inspection process, um, which is cumbersome, a pain. Um, so that was the first hurdle, which we cleared. Um, and then on a day-to-day -day basis, yeah, it's just, you know, any, any child fiber over, any human fiber over, in the state of Oregon is required to wear a mask when distancing is not possible or likely. Um, so we have a number of students that are five and six, so they will have to wear a mask the whole time they're at school. Um, while the threes and the fours don't. So that right there presents Goodness. a challenge, right? When some of our kids are required to and some aren't. And, you know, we have families that want their three- and four-year-old to wear a mask, and we have families that refuse to put their three- or four-year-old in a mask. So we're really, like, across the board in the mask world um, with our program, which, which certainly presents um, a, a number of, of challenges, I'm sure, that people listening can see based on that. Um, so that's the big one. And then, you know, we're being called to, to distance ourselves, and asking this age group of children to stay six feet apart is an impossibility. Um, mm -hmm. so, so that's a challenge. Um, figuring out how do we help facilitate that the best to our ability without taking away from this experience for the kids. Um, and then just the cleanliness. The cleanliness piece is really tricky. You know, we work with a lot of porous materials. Um, you know, wood, for example, is kind of one of the biggest things we work with. All our tables, all our seats, everything is wood. So, like coming up with plans and ways to clean all these surfaces um, is tricky. And, and just being on top of the hand washing is going to be a very significant part of our job. Um, which just adds adds a whole a whole other element of um, complexity. Um, so, but in general, like so we get to operate you, our program. Yeah, but how, 
Can you just slow down just a second and, and talk about how you do hand washing in the forest? Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, we have listeners can visualize if you go camping, you have a maybe have a big five-gallon blue plastic water jug with a, with a little yeah. valve on it. So we have three of those this year. Um, one of them is for drinking water, which has remained blue. And I've spray painted the outside of the two other ones a different color for hand washing. So we're using those for hand washing. Um, we'll have a gray water catch bucket and we'll wash your hands. You just turn on the spigot and wash your hands directly into the gray, the gray water bucket. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, that's right. I mean, we don't have running water. We don't have electricity. So we have to get creative about how we do these things. So, so yeah, we'll be washing our hands often at very specific times. And, and also we see a child rubbing their face or if an adult rubs their face or nose or um, anything like that, we're going to be, we're going to be washing hands. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you wanted to speak for just a minute about some of the challenges you had about regulation and how the, the regulation that was designed just didn't fit uh, for a foreign mm -hmm. school. Yeah. And I know so you could probably go on forever about that, but just I'll try to be, I'll try to be succinct, uh, as succinct as I can. So when the application process was going on, you know, we were being called to apply to reopen to make sure that we were clear on what we needed to do for COVID. That was the call. Um, but going through the process, we were being asked to do many things um, that were completely unrelated to COVID. And in fact, a couple of them I felt made our program less safe as related to COVID. Um, and so that was a big challenge for us. I won't go into specifics because that would take up too much time, but that was a big challenge for us. And, you know, I brought it to the family's attention that are a part of our program. And we kind of had this mini campaign and petitioned the Department of Education of Oregon. And I was on the phone with the director of the early learning division. And we basically got a bunch of that stuff reversed. And the state of Oregon changed the way they were allowing programs like ours to continue and reopen. Um, so... So the, the biggest challenge was them asking us to do things that were unrelated to COVID, that were, were shaking the foundation of our program and what we were trying to do, you know, pre-COVID. So. Yeah, and did, did that have to do with the fact that often when we think about education or school, we're thinking about a building, and then here you are doing it without a building very intentionally, and was it about that kind of just not being able to really understand the mission? Yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, that, that was the biggest thing for sure. They, you know, we, we have many acres that we can access, but we operate mainly on about an acre, a little less. And uh, what they were, it's, it's not, that acre is not fenced. The whole property is fenced. That acre is not the way we manage our supervision. It's, uh, we don't feel it's necessary for it to be fenced. The state gotcha. wanted us to do a bunch of fencing to basically herd our kids closer together, like pretty close together which seems counterproductive to what we're being called to do. So that was my, that was my, uh, that was my battle with the state. <laughs> yeah. Over the 
So what um, what do you see moving forward into the next month or so as far as um, vision and hope for your program? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy because we've done, like, no advertising, and we're one kid shy of being a completely full program. Um, so my hope is that we – well, number one, avoid any positive cases of COVID at our program. Um, and two, you know, I'd love to be able to um, maybe open a second location of our program here because the need seems to be there. People are wanting this kind of experience, especially now, to keep their kids outside, you know, um, and not closed up in, in a room. Uh, during this pandemic time. So that's our biggest hope. That's one of our biggest hopes is to maybe create more possibilities for other kids to access programs like ours. Well, may it be so. Brian Crosby, the uh, founder and owner of uh, Fern and Feather uh, Forest Preschool in Corvallis, Oregon, thank you so much for joining us on Community Pulse. And I wanted to let people know that Brian and I have had a longer conversation, which I recorded and will be playing uh, on Wednesday night on Your Health Matters. So if you wanted um, to get another dose of Brian, uh, uh, that that will be available to you, and we will put up um, some contact information for his school on our um, uh, station website and Facebook page. So um, uh, we're. I want to remind people that if you want to get tested, there are several places to get tested. Uh, University of Missouri, through their website, you can uh, get a, an assessment. You can call my office, 443-7070, and I hear that Providence Urgent Care is also helping people get tested. So wear your mask, wash your hands, um, take your vitamin D, and uh, generate a uh, cheerful confidence that your body can handle an infection. And um, Ginny will be in your ears on Wednesday, and I'll be back in your ears on Monday morning. Thank you so much, Mallory, for engineering. Thank you. You both have a great day. Thank you for the opportunity. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. If you missed part of this program or want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at kopn.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And remember to catch us live again on Wednesday at 9 a.m. Coming up next is a new national program on the KOPN docket, Between the Lines. It's a weekly half-hour radio news magazine featuring progressive perspectives on national and international issues. Um, for fans of background background briefing uh, it will be played in its entirety twice a week on tuesdays and thursdays from 9 to 10 a.m so you can catch that here on kopn tomorrow a quick weather report for today cloudy with a high near 83 and a 60 percent chance of showers and thunderstorms this morning tonight we'll have mostly cloudy with a low around 67 degrees and a 40 percent chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow more storms likely as well with a high near 81 and tomorrow morning a chance of patchy fog before 8 a.m thanks so much for tuning in to kopn 89.5 fm between the lines is up next stay tuned